Amen. You may be seated. And while you are being seated, please turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 6. 1 Kings chapter 6. Two weeks ago we covered 1 Kings chapter 5 in which we see Solomon uh, organizing and putting into play, uh, beginning the construction of the temple or at least gathering the materials for it. Uh, In chapter 6 we get a glimpse into what those materials are for and how they are being used. So beginning in 1 Kings chapter 6 verse 1. In the 480th year after the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel in the month of Zev, which is the second month, he began to build the house of the Lord. The house that King Solomon built for the Lord was 60 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, and 30 cubits high. The vestibule in front of the new house, or in front of the nave of the house, was 20 cubits long, equal to the width of the house, and ten cubits deep in front of the house. And he made for the house windows with recessed frames. He also built a structure against the wall of the house, running around the walls, the ho- running around the walls of the house, both the nave and the inner sanctuary. And he made side chambers all around. The lowest story was five cubits broad, the middle one was six cubits broad, and the third one was seven cubits broad. For around the outside of the house he made offsets in the wall in order that the supporting beams should not be inserted into the walls of the house. When the house was built, it was with stone prepared at the quarry, so that neither hammer nor axe nor any tool of iron was heard in the house while it was being built. The entrance for the lowest story was on the south side of the house, and one went up by stairs to the middle story and from the middle story to the third. So he built the house and finished it. And he made the ceiling of the house of beams and planks of cedar. He built the structure against the whole house five cubits high, and it was joined to the house with timbers of cedar. And now the word of the Lord came to Solomon. Concerning this house that you are building, if you will walk in my statutes and obey my rules and keep all my commandments and walk in them, then I will establish my word with you, which I spoke to David your father. And I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. So Solomon built the house and finished it. He lined the walls of the house on the inside with boards of cedar from the floor of the house to the walls of the ceiling. He covered them on the inside with wood and he covered the floor of the house with boards of cypress. He built 20 cubits of the rear of the house with boards of cedar from the floor to the walls. And he built this within as an inner sanctuary, as the most holy place. The house, that is, the nave in front of the inner sanctuary was 40 cubits long. The cedar within the house was carved in the form of gourds and open flowers. All was cedar. No stone was seen. The inner sanctuary he prepared in the innermost part of the house to set there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. The inner sanctuary was 20 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, and 20 cubits high. And he overlaid it with pure gold. He also overlaid an altar of cedar. 
And Solomon overlaid the inside of the house with pure gold, and he drew chains of gold across in front of the, sanctuary, the inner sanctuary and overlaid it with gold. And he overlaid the whole house with gold until all the house was finished. Also, the whole altar that belonged to the inner sanctuary he overlaid with gold. In the inner sanctuary, he made two cherubim of olive wood, each ten cubits high. Five cubits was the length of one wing of the cherub, and five cubits the length of the other wing of the cherub. And it was ten cubits from tip of one wing to the tip of another. And the other cherub also measured ten cubits. Both cherubim had the same measure and the same form. And the height of one cherub was ten cubits, so that, uh, and so was that of the other cherub. He put the cherubim in the innermost part of the house, and the wings of the cherubim were spread out, So that a wing of one touched the wall, and a wing of the other cherub touched the other wall, and their other wings touched each other in the middle of the house, and he overlaid the cherubim with gold. And around all the walls of the house he carved and engraved figures of cherubim and palm trees and open flowers in the inner and outer rooms. The floor of the house he overlaid with gold in the inner and outer rooms. For the entrance to the inner sanctuary, he made doors of olive wood. The lintel and the door posts were five-sided. He covered the two doors of olive wood with carvings of cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers. And he overlaid them with gold and spread gold on the cherubim and on the palm trees. Skipping down to verse 37. In the fourth year, the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid in the month of Zeev. In the eleventh year, in the month of Bull, which is the eighth month, the house was finished in all its parts, and according to all its specifications, he was seven years in building it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give you thanks, again, even for these minute details. We learn in these particular chapters of your word that you are concerned with things such as wood and metal and how they are used for your glory. And we pray, O Lord, uh, that you would teach our hearts, uh, even through this portion of your word. In Christ's name, amen. I think probably one of the most uh, important lessons uh, that my mother taught me as I was growing up was to be careful who you hang out with. To be careful who you hang around with wherever you are. Why? Because uh, it's obvious, right? The people that we hang around with, the people that we spend time with, uh, what they like to do and the kind of people that they are oftentimes inform the things that we like to do and the kind of people that we are. Uh, Sometimes those things that they like to do and the kind of people that they are are negative things. We've all experienced that in our middle high school years as we were growing up, hard lessons to learn. But hopefully, also at the same time, uh, we pick up some of their positive traits, right? Some of their positive uh, character traits. We can all probably think back through our lives, especially earlier on, uh, and how we hung around with those people who influenced us. You know, some of us picked up bad behaviors, some of us picked up good behaviors. But the same kind of idea is also true with, with our parents and other members of our family. And I can attest that my, my dad loved 
hunting and fishing. He was, a, he was an avid hunter and fisherman. And so those are the things that I began to like to do because that's what he did. And, and they were fun. And my brother loved farming. He loved, he loved growing things. And so the more I hung around with him, the more I developed a love and a, uh, and, and, and a care for that trade as well. All right, who we spend our time with and how we spend our time with those people it tends to, to mold us and to shape us. Especially shape the, the things that we like to do and, and the values that we hold. I think the scriptures present a, a similar idea when it comes to our relationship with God himself. We read just a few minutes ago in 1 Peter chapter 1 that uh, Peter tells his people to be holy for no other reason than because God is holy. Right? The, Peter tells his people that, that the reason they need to, to strive for holiness in their situation of suffering is because, well, because God is holy. In other words, their relationship to God has an, an immediate effect. It informs how they are to be as people. Who God is informs who they are to be. Right? Godliness itself is a product of knowing and being known by God. Right? The more we hang around God, the more we spend time in His Word, the more time we spend with His people, the more time we spend under the means of grace, the preaching of the Word and sacraments, the more, hopefully, we are sanctified, the more we are transformed into being like God. And I think 1 Kings 6 is, oddly enough, a picture of just that. I think 1 Kings 6 teaches us that, that who God is and what God does informs who we are and what we are to do. So actually, turning to the text, one of the first things that, that kind of makes this chapter so exciting is the fact that after so many years, God is finally building for himself a permanent dwelling among his people. Right? He's, finally, he's been dwelling in a tent for, for 480 years, but now, now comes the permanent house where, where God will live forever. And you can, you can kind of see how this is to, designed to be a, a more permanent structure even by the materials that are used. We've got these huge stones that were that were queried, and we've got lots of, a lot of wood. We've got lots of gold, and we're going to talk about that more later. And, and all of those things are put together in a fashion that was meant to stay, right? This particular place in which God was going to dwell was not meant to be taken apart and not meant to be moved. Right? The message is, is that, that God is officially going to dwell permanently with his people. That's the implication, But in a chapter that's filled with, with nothing but details of how the temple was built, one thing stands out in particular. And it's this, this intervention of the word of the Lord coming to Solomon. In a chapter that's beginning to end, just nothing but, but details about how the temple was built, right in the middle we have God speaking to Solomon. And what does he say? Well, he says in verse 11, 
or verse 12 beginning, concerning this house that you are building. So I know, Solomon, I know you're, you're concerned with, with getting this house built and getting it done. However, if, if you will walk in my statutes and obey my rules and keep my commandments and walk in them, then I will establish my word with you, which I spoke to David, your father, and I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people, Israel. That last sentence there, I think, is very important. I will, if you will obey the covenant, in other words, if you will love me and if you will obey my commandments, then I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people, Israel. In other words, the implication is, is that in a day and time in which the temple stood for the presence of God, oddly enough, what, what, actually, what actually wins God's presence? It's faithful obedience. So back to the question of, of why does God say this right here? Why does, it, why, why does God say this to Solomon in the midst of his building a temple? I think because he's communicating the fact that the material existence of a temple will never be a substitute for spiritual devotion to the Lord God Almighty. In other words, to kind of state it in the negative, God won't be manipulated into keeping His promises simply by having a physical temple in the midst of Israel with His name on it. Right? There's going to be no substitute for covenant obedience. There's going to be no substitute for loving the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and soul and strength. Just because there's going to be now a permanent temple in the midst of Israel doesn't mean that God can be manipulated into keeping His promises. To state it more positively, God desires for His people just to be faithful. To be faithful to His Word. And so what's the danger here for Solomon? And what's the danger here for the people of Israel? And what's the danger that we're actually going to get to see played out through the book of Kings? What's that? There, the danger is, is that there's no substitute, again, for the heart that's devoted to God. This text and God's word here to Solomon teaches us that true holiness is not just outward in appearance. True holiness is not just outward in looks and appearance, but is characterized by hearts that love the Lord God Almighty and are devoted to Him and, and as a result, obey His Word. We can use, the, actually, the, the, the building of the temple itself as, as kind of an illustration. Now, what's, what's the main structure of the temple? What's these big, huge stones that were put in place? And then what's in front of the stones? What's wood from top to bottom? The whole building is built of, of, of wood. And not just any wood. This is not just pine. This is not some crooked uh, pecan tree wood. This is, this is cypress and cedar. This is the best of the best, right? We had to go several miles away to get it in order to bring it here because it was the best to bring into the temple. So we've got stone, we've got the best wood, and then we've got the best metal to put over it all. In other words, God's temple is not just a cardboard box 
with gold plated on the inside so that it just so that it looks good. But the whole structure from the outside in is true through and through. Right? The substance of the structure is just as strong and just as just as powerful, just as just as sturdy as the gold itself looks on the outside. To say it this way, that the temple was not only beautiful to the eye, but it had the substance behind the walls to back it up. And I think that's something that, that, that we as a, a church and as a people of God could take notice of. May it never be the case for, for the body of Christ, and the body of Christ especially here at Christ Ridge, that we only have the looks and appearance of godliness. But that godliness flows from the inside out. Right? That we have true hearts that are devoted to the Lord God Almighty. Right? May it be that, that the fact that when people visit us on Sunday mornings and they have conversations with us and they, uh, and they, they learn our names and they learn how we interact with people and, and they learn how we interact with each other and they're like, wow, that, that seems like a really godly people. May it be that the longer they stay, the more they're convinced of that, not less. Right? May it be that the longer that people stay, the longer that people stick around, the more and more they find out that we actually are who we, who we say we are. We know we sin. We know we have faults and failings, and we know all of those things, but we really are a people who is truly and earnestly devoted to God in our hearts. We pray that we will be a church who's the same on the inside as we are on the outside, a church that not only looks or appears godly, but is actually godly people, a church who not only looks and appears like they love Christ, but who actually does, that we would not substitute appearance for substance. Right, that we would not substitute appearance for substance. But because at the point in which we substitute just the looks for the actual substance on the inside is the point at which we cease to be a church worth coming to. Right, again, the lesson being taught here is that there is no substitute for true godliness. We are either godly or we are not. And I'm thankful this church really truly is godly. And so the question is, is not how do we, how do we grow into godliness from, from, a, from, a, from a point in which we're in bad trouble, but the question for, I think, us as a body is, how do we maintain that? How do we continue to be a, a, a body who is truly godly at heart, who loves the Lord Jesus and who desires to serve him and to walk in obedience? How do we continue being that? How do we continue to be a church that, that takes sin seriously? How do we continue to be a church who takes Christ seriously and the gospel seriously and God's promises seriously? We actually believe what God says in his word. I think it actually, it actually begins in, in our hearts as individuals, our hearts as 
his people. It begins with each of us being clothed with the excellence and magnificence of God himself. Which is the next thing that that absolutely captivates us from 1 Kings chapter 6. Now, we've already mentioned it to an extent, but the material with which the temple was built was absolutely extraordinary. The temple temple was was constructed not with the the bottom shelf crooked boards from, from, from Lowe's, right? The ones that are just left over at the end of the day after all the contractors have come through and picked out all the straight ones. Now, the temple's constructed with the best materials that are available to this people at this point in time. Right? We have huge quarried stones that provided the structure, and stones, mind you, not even honed at the place, not even honed at the construction site, but honed way back there where they were tarried, so that, as verse 7 says, that, the, that no, uh, no tool would be heard uh, in the temple. So we have these huge quarried stones. We have a ceiling and a roof that was made of cedar. And, and some, as someone who's just purchased a lot of cedar to go on the outside of my house, if it was half as expensive then as it, was, as it is now, then that cedar costs a lot of money. So we have cedar on the ceiling, on the roof. We have the, the walls lined with cedar. We have the floors covered with boards of cypress. Right, we have carved into all the wood along the walls these beautiful gourds and cherubim and palm trees and open flowers in the wall and, and all of it then overlaid with gold, the whole building on the inside. And not to even say anything of the inner sanctuary, which the doors of the inner sanctuary was made with olive wood, obviously a very costly, rare wood. And then we have these cherubim, also made of olive wood. Imagine just how frightening those cherubim would have been. 15 foot tall, 15 foot wingspan, and two of them sitting side by side over the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. Right? I'm not the one, I don't want to be the high priest who has to go in there to that once a year. But the point is, What the author is trying to communicate is there was absolutely no expense that was spared in constructing the temple of the Lord. We have the most costly stone overlaid with the most costly wood, overlaid with the most costly artwork, overlaid with the most costly precious metal. Everything over the top. And so the question then begins... Well, for what? Why, why do we need such a nice temple? Why do we need such a, such a nice building? I think the answer is, is because if a building is going to in any way attempt to communicate who God is, then it must be over the top. In other words, to, to put it succinctly, God's presence, where God is going to put his name, where God is going to be thought to dwell, God's presence requires excellence. And I think that particular point is driven home by the fact that when you think about how many people are actually going to be able to to see the inside of this building, which is not many, only a fraction of the people of Israel, only the priests 
get to go inside. The, 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 the temple didn't itself, the inner parts of the temple didn't function as a place for, for gathered worship. So when you consider how many people were actually going to be able to see the inside of this building, you realize that the function of the temple is not so much to, to be a, a, a wow factor for the people, but it was meant to communicate something of God himself. It was meant to communicate who God is. And so therefore, going back, if God is going to put his name on this building, which he says that he is in chapter 5, verse 3, then this building needs to be worthy, in a sense, of his name. Right? If this building is going to communicate something of who God is, then it, then it can only be done via the best of the best. God's presence requires excellence, the most excellent stone, the most excellent wood, the most excellent artwork, the most excellent metal. Excellence characterizes who God is. In light of our our confession of faith earlier, does the same thing apply when God puts his name on us? The fact that God does put his name on us is communicated clearly and Confession this morning in the chapter on adoption where it says that, that as a result of our adoption, God does place his name upon his children. So what does that mean? Well, it means that if God places his name on his children, uh, then that could be a good reason for why he calls his people to be holy. Why? Because he is holy. If he's going to put his name somewhere then holiness, excellence must follow. And this is true, because when does God put his name on his people? When does God put his name on his children? Well, it's after they've been justified. It's after when Christ's perfect righteousness has been clothed upon them, and they stand before the throne, uh, the throne without blemish, without spot, but, but with the perfect righteousness of Christ. Right? Christ's excellence is put on our head. We're clothed with his excellence. And then not only that, not only are we clothed with his excellence, but he also transforms us, right? The scriptures talk about the people of God as being a people who are not only already holy, but a people who are being made holy, right? The process of sanctification. This is what the Spirit does after he comes and, and dwells in us. He transforms us from, from being a people who are who are consumed with sin to a people with being consumed with Christ. So that's what the, that's what the confession is calling for, the, the, the larger catechism is calling for there in one thirteen, at the end when it talks about ways in which God's name can be, can be uh, profaned or sinned against. Well, it says uh, that shame may be brought to God's name by unconformable, unwise, unfruitful, and offensive walking or backsliding from. In other words, God's placing his name upon his children informs who we are to be. God himself, who he is, what he does, informs who we are and what we are to be about. And so what, what, what are we to be doing? Well, God's told us already 
from 1 Peter chapter 1, but also in Leviticus, this phrase is repeated a number of times, 11.44 and about three or four more other places, that, that God calls us people to be holy because they are holy. We are told to be holy because God himself is holy. He doesn't call us to legalism. He doesn't, he's not calling us to earn our standing before him. He's not calling us to outdo everyone around us. What he's calling to is, is to faithful love and obedience. Right? He's calling us to holiness. He's calling us to, to, to the picture, the, the portrait of the man that the Beatitudes uh, paint for us. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful, the pure in heart, and the peacemakers. That's who God's calling his people to be. He's calling his people to faithful obedience to, to obeying his commandments he's calling us to live like the new create the new creatures that he's that he's made us to be why because that's what he is he's holy and so again back to our question from a few moments ago how do we remain a church who's not only godly on the outside but godly on the inside well we we pursue godliness right we we pursue holiness we pursue the things that god is himself and we do it over the long haul perhaps one of the the most interesting things about chapter six is the first verse in the 480th year after the people of Israel come out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Zeev, which is the second month, he began to build the house of the Lord. Right? It's 480 years since the people of God left slavery before we're finally at a point at which he can build for himself a permanent place of worship. Right? A permanent place on which he can put his name. It's just now, half a millennium later, we're starting the construction of the temple. What does that prove? It proves to us that that God's time is not our time. The way that we view uh, God's faithfulness, His process of salvation, His process of redemption. We would have it tomorrow, but God works it out over the course of, of, of millenniums, right? That's the same thing that we see uh, in the gospel itself, how long from Genesis 3 till the, to the coming of Christ, thousands of years, how long has it been since Christ came the first time when he said he was going to come back? It's been 2,000 years. God's always faithful to do what he says he's going to do. We know that. But his faithfulness to do what he's, he said he's going to do often requires patience on our end. This is the thing we see with, with, with church growth. This church has existed for uh, two and a half decades. Church growth has, has happened over a long period of time. God works similarly in our, in our own lives as we pursue godliness, as we pursue holiness. It doesn't happen overnight. What it, ha- it happens over decades, over decades of living the Christian life. God always works. But he usually works a, a bit more slowly than we would think that he would or we would expect him to or we would hope for him to. So God does perfect his people 
absolutely does, but it's over the course of a lifetime. Growing in holiness is not a, it's not a sprint, it, it's a marathon. So God's covenant requires love and obedience. God's presence requires excellence and God's faithfulness requires patience. This is what we've learned from this passage. We've seen how who God is and, and what God does informs who we are to be and what we are to be doing. And so then how do we kind of gauge where we as, as individuals stand in this, this long process of sanctification, this process of God's faithfulness to redeem and perfect His people? Well, I think you know, one, one of the helpful exercises the Bible employs often is the process of, of self-examination. Right? Have I been growing in holiness? Right? Have I been, one, one great way to, to tell where I'm at in my mission as an individual Christian to grow in holiness is to ask myself, you know, have I grown over in any over the past month or year or two years or five years or ten years? Right? How has God changed me? Has God changed me? Right? What sins am I still fighting that I was fighting then? Or, or what sins are new in this process of sanctification? What, what sins have, have dissipated and which ones have shown their ugly heads? Can we look back over the, the process of, of God's faithfulness in our own Christian lives and see how He has been faithful? Can we see how we have devoted ourselves to pursuing God? Or when we look back over that same period of time, do we see how, you know, I feel a lot godlier then than I do now? Right? Would we see ourselves having drifted from where we once were? Right? If we've grown content with our sin, to just leave it. It's never going away in a ways in the first place. So, so, why, so why fight it? Let me warn you, don't do that. Right? Don't find ways to justify sin. Because that's how sin rots the heart. So it's good, it's healthy. One of the applications of, of who God is and what he's doing is, is to ask ourselves, who are we? What have we been doing? Because it's that application worked out, right? To pursue holiness and to, to check, to examine ourselves in our, in our walks with the Lord. It's, it's, it's that process that, that actually protects the flock of God as a whole, that actually promotes holiness in the entire body, it's through doing that, that it's through, through doing what God has called us to do, through pursuing holiness, is how we not only look and appear godly, but we as a body actually have godliness as, as the substance of our hearts. It's what our hearts are made of. Love for Christ is what makes our hearts beat. And that's what we want. We don't want the, the, just the looks and just the appearance. We want the real thing. And it's yours in Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you, O Lord, for the fact that this duty of ours is not ours alone, but that you promise help. And you've given help. The triune God dwells in the hearts of his people in the person of the Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, we would pray. 
perfect your people. In Christ's name, amen.